Today is November 10th, 2019, and my name is Mike Spiegelman. November 4. No. <laughs> Let's try this again. <laughs> Today is Sunday, November 10th, 2019. <laughs> How do you do that? You just slam it. sell the earth the people walk upon we are the land how do we sell our mother how do we sell the star how do we sell the air crazy horse we hear what you say too many people standing their ground Standing the wrong ground. Predators face. He possessed a race. Possession. A war that doesn't end. Children of God. Feed on children of earth. Days people don't care for people. These days are the hardest. Material fields. Material harvest. Decoration on chain that binds. Mirrors gold. The people lose their minds. Crazy horse, we hear what you say. One earth, one mother. One does not sell the earth. The people walk upon. We are the land.
today is now and then. Dream smokes touch the clouds. On a day when death didn't die. Real world time tricks shadows lie. Red, white, perception, deception. Predator tries civilizing us. But the tribes will not go without return. Genetic light from the other side. A song from the heart. Our hearts to give. The wild days. The glory days live. Crazy horse, we hear what you say. One earth, one mother. One does not sell the earth. The people walk upon. We are the land. How do we sell our mother? How do we sell the stars? How do we sell the air? Crazy horse, we hear what you say. Crazy horse, we hear what you say. We are the seventh generation. We are the seventh generation.
This is the V, and good morning to you. <clears throat> We're honoring today uh, Native American Month, so proclaimed by President Barack Obama in 2011. Sure. 
like it. I like it, it's good. She said you like it now, but you'll learn to love it later. more of Robbie Robertson there. <clears throat> this is The B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. Every Saturday we do this from 10 to 12. <clears throat> we talk labor. The lives of working people and their movements and their attempts to make their lives better and the lives of everyone better celebrating as I said this month National Native American month pardon me so we started out with uh, John Trudell John Trudell the, the kind of the poet of such a great poet. I mean, he, as a poet, he has the way of uh, bringing together different ideas. Like uh, one of his phrases was that big corporations mine our minds. In this case, he's t- singing about Crazy Horse and how you can't sell the earth. This would be sad news for the real estate industry, huh? You've got all these real estate people running around buying, building, trading, flipping, and it's all real estate. How can we sell our mother? He says. Then Robbie Robertson with his Cherokee morning song. Um, we'll have some more of Robbie Robertson later. Of course, Robbie Robertson, the uh, guitarist for the band in their best years. Um, a magician with a guitar, Bob Dylan once called him. And third, there was Buffy St. Marie rocking. I love it when Buffy St. Marie rocks. Not the loving kind. She might as well be singing to the white nation. Don't tell me you're not the loving kind. Buffy St. Marie and uh, Robbie Robertson from Canada. John Trudell, we have to check and see. I'm not sure about him. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. And we're going to talk about private equity firms and how they screw everybody to show a profit. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table, that is, you're on the menu. They're talking about you. They're talking about your life. They're talking about one-third to one-half of your life. You ought to be there, sitting there, and raising your voice. Finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. 
And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Labor and Love Radio. Today, we're going to hear from not only Robbie Robertson and some more John Trudell, but Jack Kerouac, one of his autumn songs about a working man, the Bowery Blues. Labor needs to adopt social justice. Social justice has always been an aim, a part of the labor movement. There have always been those labor organizers who dream of a, a wider role for the labor movement than just workplace and bread and butter issues. A lot of people would argue that that's why the uh, labor movement has shrunken so much now, down to about 10% of the working, working class. That they've given up on, they gave up on social justice. Well, here Radio Labor, Radio Labor, our worldwide report, of what's happening with working people around the world. Little Rock teachers are organizing a strike. Speaking of social justice, their focus seems to be wider than just their nine-to-five jobs and workplaces, which we said is the key to a wider labor movement. And the world uprisings all over the world... Uprisings all over the world. The Arab Spring, which began in 2011 with a uh, a guy who who well, a peddler basically peddler on the street, and he was being pressured by taxes and all kinds of other government things that made it seem to him that. There was no chance for a working person, so he immolated himself. Kicked off the Arab Spring, and people all over the Middle East and now all over the world are demonstrating against what? Against capitalism, against austerity, against inequality against low wages. All these things are products of the capitalist class and its relentless search for profits. Okay, let's go to our radio labor now. See what's going on in around the world in the labor movement. Radio labor. For 8th, 2019, I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, how 30,000 teachers and other education workers in Chicago won a major strike by using a concept called bargaining for the common good. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and wrapping a new version of Solidarity Forever. Without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. So put your hands together, all under one umbrella. It's time for unity, solidarity forever. This is Radio Labor. 
A strike by thousands of teachers and other education workers in Chicago has shown that strikes can be more easily won if social issues are included in the demands of the workers. The strike by the Chicago Teachers Union at the end of October lasted 11 days, making it one of the longest strikes by education workers in the U.S. in recent memory. I talked to Jesse Sharkey, the president of the union. I asked him first to describe the workers who were involved in the strike. There are about 25,000 members of the Chicago Teachers Union. We represent uh, teachers uh, from pre-K all the way through 12th grade, so so from three- and four-year-olds all the way to 18- or 19-year-olds. We also represent the education support workers that make schools run, so clerks, teachers' assistants. We also represent the clinicians, the psychologists, the social workers, the other people who attend to students' social and emotional needs. And then in addition to that, we are joined in the strike by members of SEIU Local 73, the service employees, and they represent some of the lowest paid workers in the system, bus aides, security guards, assistants in special education classrooms who work more high-need students, um, students who are wheelchair-bound, students who need to be um, fed or diapered, um, and there was about another 7,000 workers. So in all, we had about a little over 30,000 workers out on strike. I know it's a complicated situation, but can you tell us a bit about the major demands and what happened to them? Well, not too complicated. Uh, you know, the, the issues were pretty simple in that we were demanding far more resources be put into the public schools, and we wanted to see the number of staff or personnel in the schools increase. Many public schools, for example, in Chicago, would only have a nurse for one day a week. So we were demanding a nurse every day of of the week in every school. Uh, We were demanding social workers. We were demanding extra personnel to help with special education. And so those are sort of basic set of demands. Also, we had demands around smaller classes, and we wanted a fairly large uh, pay increase, especially for the lowest paid workers, many of whom live in poverty in the city of Chicago. The workers' demands included more affordable housing in the city as part of the bargaining for the common good concept. What is bargaining for the common good? We have approached bargaining with the schools from the point of view that the whole working class of our city needed to see their own aspirations, needed to have their own hopes for a better city to be able to see that in our bargaining. So these were our social demands. Bargaining for the common good meant that we should make demands at the bargaining table that would make the city better, that would make conditions for our students and for their parents better. You mentioned housing. Chicago, like a lot of you know, cities in the United States, has an affordable housing crisis. Development in the central business district has happened at the expense of development of housing out in working class or residential neighborhoods. And so we as teachers said it doesn't do any good for there to just be higher pay for teachers if none of our students can afford to live in our neighborhoods. If all of our students move out of the city, there won't be any schools at all. So we included demands uh, around housing. 
We also included demands for sanctuary for immigrants. In Chicago, almost half of the student body are students who are from Latino background. We also demanded money for community schools, that is schools that ha- get, receive extra funding in order to um, provide extra programs in, in the neighborhood or in the community where they're located. And so all of these demands, you know, we thought of as bargaining for the common good. These were our social demands. The district began by saying they didn't want to negotiate with us about any of these demands. They said these demands didn't belong in a collective bargaining agreement. But ultimately, over the course of the strike, we did win some of these demands. Um, Not all of them, but, for example, we did not win affordable housing. But the city was forced to concede schools that have the highest homeless populations. They provided extra personnel to help students find shelter. So, you know, that was an important demand which which housing advocates feel very proud to have achieved. We also won sanctuary provisions so that immigrant students can be safe at school and not have the police come into the schools. We also won provisions that allow our staff who have to deal with immigration matters to have official leave so they can go, they can deal with court and not face disciplinary consequences at work if they have to go in front of a a judge or, or a court. Are there lessons either about the bargaining demands or the common good bargaining concept that could be adopted by other unions? The, the thing I would say is that the strike in Chicago was a very popular strike. The public came out in large numbers to the big demonstrations. Uh, we had a lot of support out on the picket lines. We had people bringing us food, honking their cars in support. In the, sh- in the small shops across the city, all the shops had discounts for teachers or had signs of support. So there was really a strong sense in the city that shopkeepers of the city supported us. And I think that that has everything to do with our social demands. It has everything to do with the fact that the people that the people didn't just think that this was a strike about a narrow wage demand or a narrow work rule, but they felt that this was a fight that would benefit everyone. I would urge that all unions adopt this approach, it, public sector unions in particular. It underscores, it emphasizes the relationship between the services we produce and the people who benefit from those services. Right now, we see so many politicians, so many of the wealthy in our society trying to drive a wedge between public workers and the public. They say, oh, you public workers, you 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 have these pensions, you have these these salaries that we have to pay for out of taxes, and they try to build resentment, and they try to create public anger towards unionized workers. And uh, I really think this is the most effective way to combat that, is to embrace the relationship between what we do and the people who benefit from those services, and to widen our demands, and to make our demands more confident and more far-reaching. I think that is, to me, that is the lesson of, of what we did here. So what's happening in the United States? It seems that teachers, well, I don't want to call it an uprising, but there have been a number of teacher strikes in many states in the past couple of years, including Arizona, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma. What's going on? Teachers were nice, quiet people for many years. What's happening? (laughs) 
I think what's happening is that the strikes are catchy. You know, once one group of people shows that you can have success with demonstrating and striking, then other people look to it. So you have seen an entire wave of strikes, which has been going on for the last several years. And I also think that the attacks on the public sector and the attacks on public education in particular that happened with the neoliberal governments, you know, the Republican governments and the Democratic governments, have produced frustration and anger among education workers. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Today, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about workers and their unions from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample of those stories. Our top story sections included links to coverage of the latest general strike in Algeria, rotating strikes by sector in Chile as unions increase the pressure on the government there to move off of its neoliberal agenda, and the latest violent repression of unions in the Philippines and Zimbabwe. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes in France, where mobile phone retail workers held a warning strike last Saturday, by Spanish solid waste collection workers, by mine workers in New Caledonia, and by perfume makers in Monaco. Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by Canadian smelter workers who were locked out for refusing to accept their employer's terms, and by Portuguese call center workers facing wage cuts and reduced job security. Walkouts caused by ongoing government austerity policies were underway this week around the world. Algerian magistrates continued their walkout over cuts to the judicial system, while in Paraguay, prison guards were joined by court workers and other public sector workers in their strike. Teachers in Czechia were off the job for a day in a national protest over education funding, as were all of Buenos Aires' teachers. And in France, firefighters were refusing routine work in a protest over pension and other rollbacks, including understaffing. A solidarity strike was organized by teachers in Mali after some of their comrades were sacked. Attacks on basic labor rights provoked a response in Switzerland where transport workers took part of a day to celebrate a ban on Uber, the result of earlier strikes. In Belgium, hospital workers were fighting precarious work, and in Portugal, car assembly workers took three days off to protest a toxic working environment. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about a survey of Australian flight attendants which found that 25% are sexually harassed each year, a strike by boarding school matrons in New Zealand, and the role of young women workers in the Lebanese general strikes. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about why falcons are a hazard for airport workers in the Philippines, safety concerns about the Boeing 737 from flight attendant unions around the world, and reports that over 1,000 attacks on firefighters were recorded in the United Kingdom on bonfire night. Currently, Labor Start is running two online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. 
This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Ruben Benny Esquero with an updated version of Solidarity Forever. Uh, no more division, no, we're bringing a new vision And it's just in time from ashes we give birth a new tradition Solidarity forever with a new millennium flavor Now we're resurrecting it, one century later Keep our feet fixed on the past In order to stay rooted in our minds eye on tomorrow So that today we get through this So that one day we're victorious So just gather now, come here Divisions are created by those who doubt and fear We give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line Those who took it to the streets Moving crowds with conscious minds Those who gave their lives Give thanks to those who made lost lots only work for those who make them not break them be patient the best way to protect your rights is by always knowing your rights without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn so put your hands together all under one umbrella it's time for unity solidarity forever Your money's being hoarded and the people are unsupported Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest They're thinking that it's clever, but we know we're something better Solidarity forever Now jobs are disappearing and all we're ever hearing is Pay a lot more, get paid a little less Work a little harder, then work a little longer But we're taking it no longer We're decided we're uniting Cause together we are stronger The unions got our back CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts on our website at www.radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Jack Kerouac, working in New York. I had a slouch hat, too, one time. The old slouch hat. I just keep walking around, and he keeps walking around with me, around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained, I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I uh, had to carry through many rainy days, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day and the house dick might have saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties. Slacks with peculiarities. I couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. 
wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. <laughs> Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh no, those won't do. And I walked out. Wrapped the slacks around my waist. Took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman. No, those won't do. Good afternoon. And walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club, Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other Dartmouth Club, University Club. Always barred the yacht club, because it was a little over my kin. Because the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of Who's Who, but a Who's Who also have to be a member of Who's Who in New York in the special clique of Who's. <laughs> I'd get in the athletic club many times. Then I'd go up in the billiard room, and I would wander back around the room, hands and back, and every coat rack I backed up against the field for the wallet. One day I walked out of there with 10 wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon a very dignified looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, who? And I says, man told me his name while we're drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room in the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go. Well, tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hurriedly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast-offs of the hotel, which they collect and rummage cells. May now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. I seen that hat by moonlight. Yeah. I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed, half inch from here. Double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turn and look at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a pince knee with a long black ribbon to my buttonhole, and I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that mustache and that pince necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally had to pack it in because it was too well worn. Pince was in a coat I stole. Mustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother come to see me, she says, oh no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine and I come down full of goofballs too. This guy had a ventriloquist doll and he gave out this Texas Guinan routine. Hello, sucker. We like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger your roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Wound up in his room, gave him a shot of morphine. Out on the highway, I thumbed the ride into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore. So we went in the back and he had corn on the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I always hear people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pen upon, dilated, everything. 
As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick, bought a safety pin and buffalo, and took a shot in the toilet. Come out and saw a fella shaving, his coat hanging there. Hung my own coat and gave his coat a brush with my hand. Felt his wallet, washed my hands, went out and took off with the wallet. So I started out on a shoplifting campaign in Buffalo. It was about 1910. Wasn't very experienced at it. Started out with a top coat and sold it in the taxi cab stand. Next day I decided to get myself some suits and I went up and I had a suit box and I walked about and put the suit box in one of the dressing rooms, looked and fooled in the mirror, went out and I hawked those two. Next day, like a damn fool, go out to the same store, but I got a newspaper instead of a suit box. Thought I'd try a new routine. Two guys kind of watching me. I went in, wrapped myself up, two suits, went in the elevator. Bottom gentleman tapped me on the arm. Will you come with me, please? And the county jail, they ate breakfast, you got oatmeal, with one spoonful of molasses. For lunch, stew, mostly bones, graveyard stew. And for supper, dinner at night, beans, and you couldn't smoke. The Bowery Blues. Cooper Union Cafeteria. Late cold March afternoon. The street, Third Avenue, is cobbled, cold, desolate with trolley tracks. Some guy on the corner is waving his hand down, knowing somebody emphatically. And out of sight behind a black and white pillar, cold clowns in the moment horror of the world. A Puerto Rican kid with a green stick stooping to bat the sidewalk but changing his mind and halting on. Two new small trucks parked. The withery gray rose stone building across the street with its rhyme heights in the quiet winter sky. Inside are quiet workers by neon and tablatures practicing fanning lessons with the murderous marble. A yakking blonde with awful wide smile is macking her mouth lip talk to an old bodhisattva papa on the sidewalk. The tense quickness of her hard working words. Meanwhile, a funny bum with no sense tries to panhandle them and is waved away stumbling. He doesn't care about society, women embarrassed with paper bags on sidewalks. Unutterably sad, the broken winter shattered face of a man passing in the bleak ripple followed by a Russian boxer with an expression of Baltic lostness. Something grim and Slavic and so helplessly beyond my conditional ken or ability to evaluate and believe that I shudder as at the touch of cold stone to think of him. The sickened old awfulness of it like slats of wood wall in an old brewery truck. For I prophesy that the night will be bright with the gold of old in the inn within. Shin McIntario with no money, no bets, no health, hauls on by pawing his inside coat, no hope of ever seeing Miami again since he lost his pickles on Orchard Street. 
And his father stutel-fedded him to hospitals of gray, bleak bone, drying in the moon that mortifies his coat, and words sing what mind brings. Bleeding, bloody seamen of Indian England, battering in coats of Third Avenue, with no sense and their brows streaked with wine sop. Blood of obligate, sad adventurers, far from the pipe of Liverpool, the bean of bone, bottle liffy brown, far hung unseen top tippers of ocean wave. God bless and sing for them as I cannot. Cooper Union Blues, the Muzak is too sod. The gaiety of grave candidates makes my gut weep and my brains are awash down the side of the blue-orange table. As little sneery, snurfling Puerto Rican hero bats by booming his coat pocket, fisting to the vicinity where mortuary waits for bait. What kind of service do broken girls give? Oh, have pity, bodhisattva of intellectual radiance. Save the world from her eyebrows of beautiful illusion. Hope, oh hope, oh nope, oh pope. We're back. That was uh, <clears throat> Jack Kerouac on an album he cut with uh, Steve Allen, the late show host and piano player. Um, poetry for the Beat Generation. And that one you just heard was Bowery Blues. And before that, I used to have a slouch hat, sort of Jack Kerouac's career as a pickpocket. Huh? Ended up in jail. Okay, we... we um seems like a theme of, of the first hour and, and what of our reporting today is that labor should endorse labor needs to embrace social justice unionism. Okay, this is from In These Times. Proponents of the rank and file strategy. This is Bill Fletcher formerly the head of AFL-CIO Education Department, author of an excellent book uh, called They're Gonna Bankrupt Us and Other Lies People Tell About Unions. Proponents of the rank-and-file strategy emphasize the need to lay the foundations of a revitalized labor movement through rank-and-file workers. The idea has a long history Build a real working class left and rebuild organized labor. It encourages people on the left to engage as rank and filers, to enter the union, enter the working class as co-workers rather than staff. Rather than being a friend of labor, you're, you're labor. The idea is not elitist. It supports fellow workers have something to teach rather than simply being vessels for knowledge from leftists. This is very true. If you're involved in a movement, in any movement, 
your dedication and your energy and everything are profoundly affected by the fact that you're out there working for yourself as well as for your class brothers and sisters. It's an amazing, amazingly strong, forceful idea. All of a sudden you look around and you're not a missionary out there trying to help these poor benighted people or in the case of teachers as poor benighted kids. So, I mean, my work as a teacher, I began uh, doing a lot of work around uh, the African-American Revolution. I taught at a school that was mostly African-American. And, and I remember going out on a field trip one day and uh, an old black man in the street, a wino we used to call started yelling at the kids, saying about how they shouldn't trust me because I was white, and what was I doing there? And it hit me. I mean, uh, um, what was I doing there as a white person? Did this imply that I figured my own issues were settled and uh, I could go out of my home and do this work with other people and come and help them and come back? No. It wasn't until I realized that the schools I was working at were mostly schools for working people of whatever ethnicity. That's when I was able to make that connection. Okay, I was a working person. They were from families of working people. This is the idea. It's more of an orientation, the article goes on to say. It's not a full strategy. Um, so... In these times, check it out. Labor needs to embrace social justice unionism. And that's when the whole idea of elitism and, and ranks and classes within the movement just dissolves. Social justice is where it's at. Let's see what's on the labor beat. And as usual, Stephen Miller, Mr. Trump's hatchet man, a recently leaked study, a recently leaked federal study, found that refugees to America brought in $63 billion more in government revenues than they cost in the last 10 years. But Mr. Trump's spokesman, Stephen Miller, um, quashed it. He wouldn't allow that to be 
release that news, that study. They didn't allow it to be released because it didn't coincide with Mr. Trump's strategy, right? <laughs> so don't don't let them see it. Okay, here's um. We have to admit that the government is held in place by lies. This is the only way that it can exist, such a government as what we have. Here's a little audio video from uh, Canada. Labor unions are great, it says. This might seem like a bad time to talk about unions. But there's never a bad time to talk about unions. Why? Because unions are great. Here's the thing. Even if you're not in a union, nearly every right you have as a Canadian employee is thanks to unions. Paid vacations? Unions. Minimum wage? Unions. Mat leave? Unions. Even this wall not being filled with asbestos? Yeah, buddy. That's unions. Huh. But that's old news. What about today? Well, today, unions are still fighting. Fighting for equal pay and opportunities for everyone, regardless of job, race, gender, sexual orientation, or ability. If it matters to Canadians, if it matters to you, unions are fighting for it. And we won't stop fighting until we get it. Why? Because unions are great. Unions are great. That was produced by a union up in Canada. Look on the Labor and Love website, our Facebook page. There's something that the empire all of a sudden shows its true face, huh? The Tulsa riot of 1921. This is where the white establishment and white citizens of Tulsa turned on their African American neighbors as a result of an unsubstantiated rumor that blacks had assaulted uh, some whites. 15,000 blacks were left homeless. Between 300 and 3,000 were killed, wounded, and or missing. 1,500 homes were burned to the ground and over 600 black-owned businesses in a 35-square block area were bombed now. Bombed. The city government, National Guard, got a hold of some planes and flew over the black neighborhoods and threw bombs down. in the all-black Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was the first American city to be bombed by airplanes. More people died this day than in any single event since the Civil War. White historian did an excellent job of wiping their footprints from the sand. 
Reference to this can't be found in any history books. Amazing. Tulsa, and that was 1921, and that was just a hundred years ago. Okay, keep going on the labor beat. Here's labor and sports. There's a young man named Damian Lillard who uh, was raised in Oakland, went to Oakland High, now playing for a team from Portland, professional team. An excellent player, all-around player. Lillard has been very critical of the move by the Golden State Warriors, who used to play in Oakland. This year, they built a new arena and moved to San Francisco, uh, down in the area of AT&T Park, or whatever it's called now. <laughs> Lillard says it's a money grab. And... He said, it's different vibe coming into Oracle as a kid and as an NBA player, and it looks certain way, and it doesn't look like that. It's definitely different. People are leaving games early. Lillard said both the Warriors and the Raiders' decision, another professional team that's leaving Oakland, is financially motivated. He says, Warriors go across the bridge, Raiders going to Vegas, almost like a money grab. Grab the money. Who's just kind of pushing the real love and what's really behind these organizations to the side, which is understandable, but also not understandable because I'm from Oakland. You hate to see it. I don't like it. You're removed from ousting the trailblazers... Well, the Warriors have had lots of injuries, so that's... Finally, he says, real Warriors fans aren't able to get into the games, and this is a real issue, a real issue with professional sports. Okay, professional sports are so ascendant now, so... Um... Everywhere, all um, they're such money makers with the TV contracts and the cable contracts that the tickets people are being priced out of regular people are being priced out of seats, priced out of the whole sport. I mean, they. That's what he says when he's talking about real fans. When German unions built housing for people, this is on uh, Portside. In recent months, Germany's rent crisis has captured international attention. This particularly owes to a headline-grabbing initiative in Berlin. We're faced with the rising rents. Activists are working to force a referendum on the expropriation of the biggest landlord. 
Schultz. Until 1982, the German Trade Union Confederation owned the largest housing and construction companies in Europe, encompassing 400,000 apartments. Its portfolio also included swimming pools, shopping malls, office spaces, universities, congress centers, and health clinics. A cooperative social housing project, one built not in the interest of corporate profit, but from below in service of residents themselves. At its peak, Neue Heimat, which translates to new home, had a turnover of 6.4 billion Deutschmarks and employed nearly 6,000 people. The idea was to create affordable cooperative housing, democratically owned and managed by the broad sections of the population who lived in them. In the early 1980s, corruption, scandal, and debt brought the company into liquidation. This put an end to the idea of a union-owned urban development. Check that out. It's on Portside, and the title is When German Unions Built Housing for People. And you heard it here on Labor and Love Radio. Capitalism in a nutshell. Here's a cartoon. Bread and roses. There's a boss and sitting in front of a large uh, switchboard, computer. He says, this machinery is very productive and I own it. That's why I'm rich. One of the workers says, but you didn't build the machinery. One of the others adds, and you didn't operate it. And the last one says, in fact, you don't even seem to be doing any work around here at all. Here, here. Here, here. Owners are profiting off your labor. Your work, your labor makes them rich all the way up the ladder. CBS News reports minimum wage would be $33 today if it had grown like Wall Street bonuses have. Wall Street bonuses are 52% higher than a decade ago, even though they fell by 17% to an average of 153700 That's a bonus now. That's not a wage. That's not something that these people worked for. And if the minimum wage had kept pace with the same growth as Wall Street bonuses... The hour baseline wage would be thirty-three fifty-one an hour. CBS News reports that one. Here's Jamie Dimon trying to uh, talk to a woman who's asking him, a uh, congressperson. 
is asking him why they can't pay a living wage. You're an expert on financial statements and you run a $2.6 trillion bank. I know you're good at numbers and you've shared lots of opinions recently about how the U.S. should budget its resources, how families should budget their resources. And so I'd like to ask for your help on a problem. I went to Monster.com and I found a job in my hometown of Irvine at J.P. Morgan Chase. It pays $16.50 an hour. Um, and so I wondered if I could, um, if you'd indulge me, um, would you do the math on this and you do the $16.50 out at 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, it comes out to an income of $35,070. Now this bank teller, her name is Patricia. She has one child who's six years old. She claims the one dependent after tax. She has $29,100. We divide that by 12. She rents a one-bedroom apartment. She and her daughter sleep together in the same room. In Irvine, California, that average one-bedroom apartment is going to be $1,600. She spends $100 on utilities. Take away the $1,700, and she has net $725. She's like me. She drives a 2008 minivan and has gas. $400 for car expenses and gas. Net 325. The Department of Agriculture says a low-cost food budget, that is ramen noodles, a low food budget is $400. That leaves her $77 in the red. She has a Cricut cell phone, the cheapest cell phone she can get for $40. She's in the red, $117 a month. She has after-school childcare because the bank is open during normal business hours. That's $450 a month. That takes her down to negative $567 per month. My question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall? fall while she's working full-time at your bank? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Would you recommend that she take out a J.P. Morgan Chase credit card and run a deficit? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Would you recommend that she overdraft at your bank and be charged overdraft fees? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. So I know you have a lot I'd of... I'd love to call up and have a conversation about her financial affairs and See if we can be helpful. See if you can find a way for her to live on less than the minimum that I've described. Just be helpful. Well, I appreciate your desire to be helpful, but what I'd like you to do is provide a way for families to make ends meet. So the little kids who are six years old living in a one-bedroom apartment with their mother aren't going hungry at night because they're $567 short from feeding themselves, clothing them. We allowed no money for clothing. We allowed no money for school lunches. We allowed no money for field trips, no money for medical, no money for prescription drugs, nothing. And she's short $567 already. Mr. Diamond, you know how to spend $31 million a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a $567 a month shortfall. This is a budget problem you cannot solve. Congresswoman puts Jamie Diamond on the hot seat. And Mr. Diamond is kind of the star banker of... Uh, of the financial industry, sort of the guy, you know, more liberal. He's a Democrat. He's uh, well-spoken, knows how to handle the press. Want to decrease suicide? CBS News references a study that says we should raise the minimum wage. A new study finds that economic this policies... This is the story of how I become the world's greatest hero. Oh, pardon me. I want you to introduce yourself to the world and proudly say, I am here now for a lesson. You may have heard these words before. Pardon me. But I'll teach you... We'll turn this off for a minute before we get on to...
the wages. This is a commercial, because there's commercials everywhere. Internet is a commercial's paradise. Wall Street bonuses fell 17% last year, according to new data from the New York State Comptroller. But despite the decline, Wall Street bonuses are 1,000% higher than they were in 1985. According to the Institute for Policy Studies, a left-leaning research center, the federal minimum wage has increased about 116% during this same time period. The group says if the minimum wage had grown at the same pace as Wall Street bonuses, fast food and other low-wage workers would earn a baseline wage of $33.51 an hour. I'm here, and suddenly my mind... Okay, so there's the news. The minimum wage would be 33%, $33.51 if it had risen as fast as CEO bonuses. Thank you so much for joining us. There are indications tonight that what we've heard so far in the impeachment inquiry... Okay, well, that's more impeachment news. I was looking for an article about want to decrease the minimum wage... I know, want to decrease suicide, raise the minimum wage. And of course, we're getting stuck here in commercials. Get the second one for zero dollars a month. <laughs> okay, well, we're getting the same story over again. So that would be an interesting one, raise the minimum wage. And one more before another music break. Private equity firms are modern-day vampires sucking the lifeblood out of our society. Deadspin is the latest victim. Deadspin was a, nominally a sports uh, site, but the writers realize that sport and society are, there's no separation, right? Uh, labor writer and activist Kim Kelly warns us that in the 21st century, private equity vampires have to be controlled. Welcome to Real News, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us. And I guess many of you have been reading about what happened to Deadspin, the sports site where writers gave the middle finger to the owners to stop them from being political. They didn't want the right political stuff, just sports stuff straight. Well, they did that. And let's think about these private equity firms for a minute. They are vampires sucking the lifeblood out of our country, businesses, and the workers. The analogy is really apt. Poultry capitalists symbolize, let's say, I found this out in the article I just read. We're about to talk to the author, the 16th century Countess Bathari, who bathed in the blood of young girls, or the vampire stories from every country on the planet. Our guest today put these analogies together in a bold context, where she wrote about the destruction of the sports website Deadspin, and she looked beyond that to look at the role of these venture vampire capitalists and how they, what they do in our world, what they play in our world, what they're doing to our world. So I want to welcome Kim Kelly back to The Real News, who wrote the article, This is a Horror Story, How Private Equity Vampires Are Killing Everything, for The Nation magazine. And Kim, welcome. Good to have you with us. 
Thanks for having me. Nice for being interested in my my weird, bloody little little tale. <laughs> it was a very strange article, but a really good article. Um, I love the analogy. So let's take a step back for just a second. So you you took these. And we'll probably jump into who these private equity people are and what they've done and what happened to Deadspin directly. You created this analogy, this historical analogy with both the mythology and reality of vampires in our world, whatever culture they came from, to what private equity people are doing to our world today. So talk about how that came to you. What, what, how did that come into your head? And as you told me before we went on there, you wrote it at three in the morning, which is probably very apt time to write it. Yeah, even better. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I wrote this on Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds a little too on the nose, right? <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, I mean, the piece came about because um, some editors of The Nation hit me up and said, you know, we saw what's happening with Deadspin. Do you want to write a piece for us about this? Because I'm a labor reporter, and that's sort of what we do. This is very much in my realm, given that I came out of the, the digital media organizing world. I used to work at Vice as an organizer there, yada, yada, yada. So they asked me if I wanted to do this, and I was thinking about it. It's like, well, what's a way that I could write about this in a way that wasn't that was new, that was interesting, that wasn't the same piece that was being written because it was a huge story, because it was such a huge event. But I was, I started thinking about, you know, ah, these, these capitals, vampires. I was like, hang on, vampires. Like this, because we see even just on Twitter, right? The way people speak about private equity in the general capitalist class is like they're vampires, they're bloodsuckers, they're leeches. Like this is the language that, I mean, it makes sense when you think about the way that capitalism is structured, the way that these people, these robber barons at the top are, you know, dealing with the working class. But I kept coming back to vampires and it was Halloween. So maybe I was feeling a little spookier than usual. <laughs> and I just started thinking about how, you know, like the like this is a horror story. Like what's happening here? Like these craven aristocratic jerks are literally sucking the lifeblood away from workers who don't have any much more of a defense than a metaphorical pitchfork. And they've been allowed to do it for centuries, since time immemorial, since way back in the sixteenth century when, you know, Countess Bathory was out there in her dungeon. And it's just we see the same story over and over again. It's almost become its own legend, right? The private equity vampire. And so that's what I was thinking about when I approached this piece. I didn't think about it, but I just kind of drove that metaphor out to the very end. Okay, there it is, private equity vampires. I invite you to check that out on the Real News Network. Private equity firms are modern-day vampires sucking the lifeblood out of our society. At the base, this is why... This is where the money goes. The money is going to investors, not to workers. The money is going to investors and not workers. But the structure of our society is such that everyone needs to be an investor. How many people have a job that allows them to save enough money so they can retire? No, they have to invest. Every morning as I drive over here, every Saturday morning, I hear a guy who's got an investment show and he's talking about how to pay less taxes. And so this is what we're, we're forced into, unless you've got a pension, unless you've got a million or $2 million so you can live off the interest. Anyway, let's listen to Pink. Mr. President. Na, na, na. 
Pretend we're just two people and you're not better than me. I'd like to ask you some questions if we can speak honestly. What do you feel when you see all the homeless on the street? Who do you pray for at night before you go to sleep? What do you feel when you look in the mirror? Are you proud? How do you sleep while the rest of us cry? How do you dream when a mother has no chance to say goodbye? Filipino children trapped in adult jails. Dear Mr. President, were you a lonely boy? Say goodbye. 
president You'd never take a walk with me Okay, that was uh, Pink, Dear Mr. President, and uh, she says it all there. How can you, you can't even look me in the eye. Dear Mr. President, I'm going to play some more Robbie and some more John Trudeau. Here's one with uh, The Weight. And this is playing for change, where they go all the way around the world with a, a song. This is going to... Um, Robbie Robertson, as I said, Robbie Robertson and um, Buffy St. Marie are Canadian. And uh, John Trudell, who we're going to play next is uh, from Nebraska, Omaha. What keys are in, Robbie? F demented. <laughs>
he caught me in the fog He said, I will fix your rack If you'll take Jack, my dog I said, wait a minute, Chester No, I'm a peaceful man He said, that's okay, boy Won't you feed him when you can Robbie Robertson's The Weight, played by a group called Playing for Change. And basically what they do is they have uh, <clears throat> musicians from all over the world, five different continents, playing a certain song, in this case, uh, The Weight. And then they cut from one to the other to the other as time the song goes goes by the weight Robbie Robertson I want to get to uh, Golden Land's Working Hands today we're on uh, chapter 7 which is the 1950s let's see if we can get it going here yeah. Golden Lands Working Hands. Potential weakness. Many newcomers don't know how their brothers and sisters won their rights and paychecks through the hard battles of the pre-war years. But most labor leaders have added responsibilities and worries. Teaching new workers about unionism takes time that's hard to find. This soon becomes a problem. With the wartime emergency over, many employers want to bring back the good old days of the anti-union open shop. was after the war and uh, 
I think we needed to get our share. Industry had sure made theirs during the war. And we were all, uh, you had uh, wage and price controls. So uh, most of us, we were locked into, uh, into wages. Wages have to be frozen, Joe. The workers are making too much money for their own good. And prices haven't risen very much, have they? In response to the boss's anti-labor offensive, working people launched the greatest wave of strikes in the United States history. Across the country, millions of workers walk picket lines shutting down entire industries. Many are World War II veterans, disturbed at their poor treatment after fighting for their country. In Hollywood, thousands of craft workers organized in the left-wing conference of studio unions, led by set painter Herb Sorrell, battled the studio bosses, the police, and another union. Roy Brewer, a leader of the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees, brings strike breakers across the picket lines. He hopes his members will keep these jobs. Brewer claims his opponent Sorrell is a communist and skillfully develops this idea into a publicity strategy for the studios. In an atmosphere of growing anti-communist hysteria, Brewer's tactic works well. The conference of studio unions is soon broken up. Many of its members lose their jobs or have to switch unions to keep working. Along with prominent actors, writers, and directors, Sorrell is investigated and blacklisted. He never works in Hollywood again. Despite his troubles, Sorrell takes the time to send a message of support northward to AFL brothers and sisters involved in another struggle. Oakland, California, a general strike tied up the entire area. Bus and train service ceased to exist in a dispute characterized by Dave Beck, Teamster leader in the far west area, as a lot of foolishness and more like a revolution than an industrial dispute. Meanwhile, the lives of nearly three quarters of a million people had been affected. Hold on. Did you understand what you just saw? I didn't. The perspective of the newsreel seems to be that these Oakland workers were doing something senseless. Using the same film footage, perhaps we could imagine another perspective. Something like this. Owners of Kahn's and Hastings department stores refused to recognize a union favored by their employees. Hundreds of clerks went out on strike. Police beat up picketers and helped the Retail Merchants Association bring goods across picket lines. Outraged Oakland unionists called a general strike. For two days, Oakland stood still until owners and the city agreed to negotiate with workers' representatives. Okay, we've heard two different sets of facts. The newsreel selected some, we selected others. But each version of the story is missing something. Perhaps the striking workers themselves should be heard from. I was working in the shoe department and I was making, uh, I believe, uh, $28 a week at that time. And, uh, 
you know, just getting out of the service. The only problem was that when I found, after talking to other people in, in specialty stores, just, such as Peter Brothers and, and Cushions, uh, they were making $10 or better a week, better than I was. And I went to the union and uh, asked why they didn't organize the store. These people came on back, and I mean, you know, my uh, brother Americans uh, and, and also the gals that came back from the war. And, and when they held out their hand for just a little piece of pie, the answer was no. One employer whose voice says no the loudest is Joseph Noland, publisher of the Oakland Tribune and longtime spokesman for conservative business interests. His newspaper labels moderate unionists extreme elements and warns of an impending communist takeover of Oakland. Nolan dominated the uh, uh, politics in Oakland, and he had the, the Tribune, which was his voice. And uh, everyone felt that all the decisions for the city were made at the Tribune Tower, not at City Hall. Very, very conservative, mm -hmm. very anti-union. His paper was something that we got every day to read and then got mad about. <laughs> Along with Noland, another major anti-union force in Oakland is the Retail Merchants Association. It demands that the retail clerks union organize all 28 stores in the association before it will recognize the union at Cannes and Hastings. What precipitated the strike was the firing of one of the people who had joined the union. One of the ladies um, who had joined and signed up with the union was fired. Originally we had somewhere in the area of between 70 and 80 percent of the workers came out. And I would say the same thing applied at Hastings. The women were fantastic as far as uh, holding up and, and their sense of humor and, and, uh, and being on the picket line. I'd set the schedules up and they'd be there, rain or shine. Well, it was like any picket line. Everybody walked up and down, carried signs and, and yelled, don't be a scab. <laughs> it was pretty effective. They were keeping most of the people out. People would come, see what was going on, and then turn away. But some went through. And tempers would flare. Uh, but I think that the, the tempers that flared were not the pickets, but the people going through the line knowing in their own heart, very probably, that they were doing the wrong thing. Despite a mostly peaceful picket line, feelings sometimes run high. Picket Captain Gwendolyn Byfield calls a strikebreaker scab and rat. She is arrested, but charges are dropped. After weeks go by without a settlement, the Retail Merchants Association and their friends in the Nolan political machine decide to take a different approach. I went back over to the picket line. The time I got back over there, like, like the uh, cops were are pushing our people off the street and uh, towing the automobiles away. They beat us all out of the alleys, uh, pushed us with those damn billy clubs. I was black and blue here for months. The trucks followed right behind them, went on in and unloaded. Then they went back to get more. It wasn't bringing in strike breakers necessarily that started the general strike. You know, I thought about that a lot since that. We'd seen strike breakers. But the thing was, using the police force that we were paying taxes for to beat us off our own streets. By morning, everybody had heard about what had happened. It was in the papers and the unions had heard. Everybody was very upset, and we all just went out on the streets. There was a club down there called Slim Jenkins. We were working there four nights a week when we got the call from Alex Forbes, who was our secretary business agent, that there was a general strike and that if he had any musicians working in Oakland that 
they were to immediately leave their jobs, and which we did. We didn't go to work that weekend. <laughs> Al Brown was the head of the Carmen's local at that time. The streetcars were still running on Broadway. And he came down Broadway in a streetcar. And the police were out there, and they had Broadway blocked off. And he came up to the blockade, and the, uh, the cop said, it's all right, you can take your streetcar through. And he said, well, what's the deal? They told him what they were doing, and he said, well, no, I've never crossed a picket line in my life, and I'm not about to now. So he climbed out, he took the controls out of the streetcar, climbed out of the streetcar, and that was it. That was the spark that started the whole thing at that particular time. Because every streetcar backed up behind him, they couldn't move his streetcar. He told the buses to stop, and uh, they had an uh, emergency meeting, and uh, for three days, just about nothing turned in Alameda County. When Sailors Union leader Harry Lunderberg delivers a fiery address to an overflow crowd at Oakland Auditorium, strike leader Bob Ash thinks that if he had asked the assembly to march to City Hall, they'd have taken the place apart. The biggest fear that we had during the general strike was we didn't want it to get out of hand. We wanted a peaceful demonstration, as peaceful as it could be. And really it was, when you stop and think that there was only the one incident of the typewriter being thrown through the window at Hastings. Outside of that, nothing really happened. We might ask one more question. How could a union leader, Teamster National Vice President Dave Beck, say the general strike was... A lot of foolishness, and more like a revolution than an industrial dispute. The General Strike Committee, led by Bob Ash, brings the general strike to a hasty end when Beck orders Teamster members, who'd been solidly supportive of the strike, to go back to work. Dave Beck, who are you talking about? You're talking about a man that made millions, went to prison and everything else. He never really represented these unions the way it should be represented. The CIO notified us that if it went past Thursday that they'd shut off lights and power. And I wanted to continue one more day and shut off the lights and power then we'd have the whole ball of wax. But the AFL leadership was worried that intervention by militant CIO unions, representing 30,000 workers in Alameda County in utilities and heavy industry, would invite a negative public perception, since a number of communists and their sympathizers were prominent in the Northern California CIO Council. I think the old CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, had a little bit of a, a bad taint to it at that time. J. Edgar Hoover and a few others were witch-hunting them and, and uh, working on the communist tactics and the rest of it. And we tried to keep them away from the picket line as much as possible so that we wouldn't have that sort of thing happening to us. Instead, the AFL strike committee accepts a verbal commitment from the city manager that Oakland police would no longer assist strike-breaking. They end the general strike Thursday morning after 54 hours. The settlement leaves the retail clerk strike unresolved which irritates many of their supporters, including Elizabeth Mackin. She writes a letter to Kahn's department store. It is against my principles to go through a picket line. 
I wish you to close out my account until you have a happier relationship with those who work for you. Despite the obvious depth of community support for the clerks, Kahn's and Hastings still refused to recognize the union. Worse, the day after the general strike ends, police bring scabs through retail clerks' picket lines. Feeling betrayed, labor leaders threaten another general strike. Wait, Joe. There's a better way. Recognizing the need for unity against the Nolan forces, the AFL, the CIO, the NAACP, and other progressive community groups formed the Oakland Voters League. We had put together all the precinct maps and had these lists of people. We divided the precincts up into areas of 10 precincts. I was given a map of the precincts. I was given a list of names. I didn't know where they came from and said, go find people to cover the precincts. It was a very interesting experience. This was in uh, West Oakland, an area of mixed black and white. Building a bridge between the labor movement and minority communities, the OVL runs five candidates in the spring 1947 city council election. It all went off amazingly smoothly and was a wonderful victory when we won four out of the five candidates. Although this leaves the Oakland Voters League one seat short of a majority on the nine-member council, Labor's victory cracks the anti-union Nolan machine for the first time in decades. Oakland's working people have a political voice and can no longer be ignored. One result is that the week after the election, the Retail Merchants Association recognizes the Retail Clerks Union in all of its stores. Whoever won before in Oakland? We showed by the general strike, if you hang together, you can take anybody on. It was a, a unique experience in my life to be involved in anything with such masses of people. I was really proud of the union members that came out. It, it convinced me more than ever that the union, union was the way to go for working people. When you say, what did it do for people, I think it, it, it gave them a greater sense of power. But not all California working people share in that sense of power. In 1948, Hollywood unions make this film, Poverty in the Valley of Plenty. It is meant to educate the public about the plight of hundreds of striking farm workers at the DiGiorgio Fruit Corporation ranch near Bakersfield. The corporation had kept the workers segregated by race in its eating and sleeping facilities. The National Farm Labor Union, Local 218, AFL, led by Ernesto Galarza and Jimmy Price, had a different idea to bring all the farm workers together for union recognition and a 10 cent an hour wage increase. We haven't a chance as individuals, but an organization will have strength. How many of you are with me? Aye. Aye. One new member at a nearby farm is a young Chicano farm worker receiving his first union card. Fanning out across the state, the farm workers gain wide support. Car caravans organized by the San Francisco and Los Angeles Labor Councils bring donated food and clothing. Most of the workers have to find other employment within a few months. For two years, though, a core group of workers keeps the strike going with the help of the California Labor Federation and friends in the community. But the other side is organized, too. 
somebody shot into the local meeting at Arvin, uh, hit Jimmy Price. He went down severely injured, although not killed. And no one was ever apprehended in that situation. And, and of course, our people didn't feel very good about the sheriff and the, and the, and the law enforcement process. Although Price survives, the strike does not. The Giorgio's trucks are used to break picket lines, to bring in scabs and strike breakers. Oddly enough, this film, Poverty in the Valley of Plenty, ends matters. The DiGiorgio Corporation sues Local 218 for $2 million for libel. The union has no money to contest the case. It signs a settlement out of court agreeing that the film is libelous, that it will pay DiGiorgio $1 in damages, recall all copies of the film, and end the strike. The longest farm labor strike in American history is over. But while the farm workers lose this round, the seeds have been planted for later success. That was chapter seven of our uh, history of California labor. And it's time to go. I'll go out with uh, the Internacional. Signing off, reminding you that one person gets a dollar, motorcycle lawyers were part of the riding community. Claw Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. Why not make a donation? Mutiny Radio.fm.
streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm. District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm. MutinyRadio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to mutinyradio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Gold Cadillac with the white material. I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. I'm having a really, really good time. Flat, black, glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. I'm the freeway. I am a total freeway. Lori Stanton, Jesus, absolutely right. I am Teddy, Billy, and adolescent. And I will cut the Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here. Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Let's watch full-length movies on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Watch a full-length movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen. By uh, here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days, over 50 comics from all around the U.S., and you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th annual. Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? 
I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Hey, you open micer in San Francisco comedy scene. Maybe you want time to do jokes. Well, this is the place to do it. Mutiny Radio. We have three open mic a week just for you. Monday's Joke Workshop from 6 to 8. Come and get four minutes and four minutes of commentary from your comedian peers. Come on Fridays 
for a happy hour, 6 to 8, here at Mutiny Radio. All the comics, wonderful, hilarious people in the scene. Get to know them. Hang out. Do a set. Have it recorded here and on a podcast at mutinyradio.fm. And come in on Saturdays from 4 to 6. Get long sets because no one ever shows up. So it's like stage time and people can listen. Come on by to Mutiny Radio. Get your comedy on, baby. Tell me what you think about your situation. Complication, aggravation. Is it getting to you? Then tune in live every Sunday from 12 to 2 p.m. to the edge of insanity with myself, Paul Brumbaugh. Kit Marie. Brandon Ray. And Mistress Christine. All on Mutiny Radio. That's right, PCRcollective.org. We'll see you there. Let's watch a Let's watch a full-length movie with Mike Spiegelman. Here on MutinyRadio.fm, where we stream live every Sunday at 2 p.m. Today is November 10th, 2019, and...